0: you come from this world, if you were gonna go raise, I mean, do you plan to raise this year?
1: Um, it, it's a possibility. I mean, it, based on what we're seeing right now and the feedback we're getting, it feels, it feels realistic.
2: You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka. Now, if you're hearing this, it means you're not currently on our subscriber feed. To subscribe, go to getlatka.com. When you subscribe, you won't hear ads like this one, You'll get the full interviews. Right now, you're only hearing partial interviews. And you'll get interviews three weeks earlier from founders, thinkers, and people I find interesting, like
0: Hello, everyone. My guest today is Vic Singh. He's the CEO and co-founder, or he was CEO and co-founder of Infer, a company that provides a predictive platform for helping businesses win more customers. That was inqu- acquired by Ignite. He's also an EIR at Sutter Hill Ventures. Now he's working on a stealth startup in the enterprise AI space. Vic, you ready to take us to the top? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Talk to me about what you're working on. What's the company do? Yeah, so we're still in stealth
1: mode, but we are, uh, we've been kind of in R&D mode for like the last you know, 12 to 18 months. And uh, I teamed up with the person, his name is Danny Ryan, and he uh, is a big uh, self-driving car genius uh, who worked at Neo, uh, And they're obviously doing a lot of self-driving cars there, technology. And uh, we kind of teamed up together and, you know, we were thinking about, you know, self-driving car technology is pretty amazing. Like if you, you know, know, 10 years ago, if you told someone a car is going to drive by itself, they'd probably think you're crazy. And, you know, now these cars are doing it. Uh, and, uh, uh, the advances that have been made in computer vision to pull it off, uh, is pretty remarkable. And, you know, you have companies like Google and other companies who pour billions of dollars into self-driving car tech. So it's caused the technology,
0: uh, Are you literally talking about like LIDAR and like the camera technology or something else?
1: Um,
0: actually that
1: those capabilities have improved as well, but really the vision, uh, you look at deep learning. Um, and those types of um, algorithms and machine learning models have been applied in, at large scale um, has really
0: helped improve the accuracy uh, and the safety of the self-driving project. So when um, did you start writing code for this new stealth idea What year? Uh,
1: this was uh, actually probably about a year ago. Okay. So that's when we started, you know, really um, uh, writing down the code and building some uh, infrastructure libraries. And it's nice that we can leverage a lot of these capabilities that already
0: exist, um, that the, kind of the big giants have been uh, developing. So, what is the like Like eight months, ten months from now when you guys are live? Like, who is signing up to use this? You think in the future?
1: Yeah. So, what we're what we're um, well, the application of what we're doing is we're not really doing self driving car tech, right? But we're what we're really interested in is the advances have been amazing there. But how do we take it to something else? I'm not I'm not a car fanatic. I'm not a huge believer in new startups that build self driving cars. I think it's really hard to compete with the giants. But um, if you look at the vision advances that have been made there, they've been amazing. And so could we apply that instead of to controlling cars? Could we use that to control computers themselves, right? Think of your screen. It has all these pixels. You know, you're looking at your browser and all this text. And if you applied the same algorithms that your software and car is using to your screen, uh, it it performs remarkably. It's actually a lot easier, right? It's very high quality. What does that mean? So let's say you're, you, know, you have your browser open and you're looking at like a LinkedIn page, right? And you're scrolling down. Uh, if you had one of these vision techniques that are being applied you know, with your car, those reading stop signs that are far away and fuzzy and has bird poop on it, it's much harder, but it's still able to identify those things. If you take that capability and apply it to your screen, it would know exactly what's going on, right? Because the resolution is so high. And so it can understand the text really well, OCR accuracy is improved dramatically. And so if you can understand what's going on on the screen, then it's possible to control the mouse and keyboard in the same way you control a steering wheel and a gas pedal in a car. To actually doing the work that humans
0: do on computers. But and so has, there's a lot of a car only go has a definitive amount of moves or it's quantifiable. When, when I'm looking at a brow, I mean I can do anything on the internet with my fingers and my eyeballs.
1: Yeah, the, I, mean, the, uh, I mean, even with the car, you'd be surprised. I mean, there's lots of degrees of freedom, even turning left, like how much you turn left, like how much you turn right. There's, a, there, there's quite a bit of freedom there. Here, if you think about it, you've just got a keyboard that has only a certain number of characters on it, and you have a mouse that clicks, and you just move things on an X, Y position. And so it's more about um, can we automate the things that humans do that are repetitive or manual or hard to make consistent? And so if you look at the RPA space, They have done a really remarkable job in finding repetitive, you know, things to automate data entry into Salesforce, data entry into SAP systems. Like, you know, uh, you look at banks, automate the loan application process so that you don't have to do data entry multiple times. Um, So they've kind of done that. But if you look at how those programs have been developed, they're really rule based. You have to define the rules. You're basically writing code.
0: Yeah, up- everyone, everyone listening probably is familiar with Zapier, right? So that's like the elementary version of this. And maybe UiPath would be like a way more advanced version of this. So exactly. we're on the spectrum.
1: Yeah, so we're almost on a completely different spectrum. Because if you look at UiPath, you, you're basically hiring RPA engineers to write the code. Yep. And it's like a different type of language where you're writing code. In our world, it's more about can we, can we watch what you're doing and actually learn and develop an application that models what you're doing with AI. So So it actually generates
0: your no no code macro, macro building, basically. Exactly.
1: And so, uh, what we're interested in is now we have the capability, we've developed this. Now we want to not only have this infrastructure, but we want to build the applications, the killer applications that run on. it. So if you look at the RPA space and the Zapier game, they're more about, we'll give you the infrastructure. You plug in the stuff you want, you build the automations you want. We actually want to build the apps too. And so we've been looking at a variety of different applications. One application that we've been really interested in is if you look at kind of how people um, connect with other people, like and do research about companies and do diligence and get references about companies. Uh, Today, there's these huge consulting firms that you go and hire and then they have like, Yeah, right. You have these associates you work with. They'll go and call a whole bunch of people, try to set meetings for you. Uh, It's very manual. It's very expensive. These meetings can be anywhere between $1,000 and $2,000 a meeting. Um, And it really varies depending on what associate is working with you. So associates have different skill levels. And so the quality of the matches you get in terms of who you connect with for find out more about a company or a market can vary. And so we thought, well, what if you actually just automate that? What if we use our capability and we actually do the same work these associates and these armies of consultants do? Could we actually just replace that need for huge human labor and not only do that and bring the cost down for all parties, but we can also drive better quality and better accuracy and better matches to getting the best information that we need. Regardless,
0: the person you're going to find, a let's say someone wants to go hire an expert in Google search and you go find Eric Schmidt. Right now an associate might have to dig around to find Eric Schmidt. You're saying you can find Eric Schmidt faster and cheaper. Somebody still has to get him live though on the call. That's the hard part.
1: So the, the, the queries that people have that they run through these firms today are a little bit more broad. If you have a very specific person you want to talk to, then arguably the better way to do that is through your own network or through an introduction and just go to that person directly. But if it's more like, hey, I want to talk to 100 customers of Salesforce and I want to find out if they like the product or not and what their issues are. And if you want to do that, you know, you can call up these consulting firms. They'll go and try to find you those companies and they'll try to find the right people in those companies. Maybe you want to talk to the engineering side, or maybe you want to talk to the sales side, or maybe you want to talk to the product people. So you kind of give like your job title and you give a couple, you know, examples of the companies you want to go after. And then they'll go and like find people either in their network or go reach out to new companies. And they're sending requests or figuring out the incentives. They're like, Hey, if you take this call with this person, I'll pay 500 bucks. They have to figure out all that out manually. And in reality, it's actually a big optimization problem. Right? So you have this big search space, which is like who you go after and who are the people who are more likely to respond and who's the best match to the request the person has. And then it's an incentive problem, which is like, okay, should I pay this guy $100, $200, $600, $9,000? So all that stuff is tons of variance. And this is all being left to you know, whoever the associates are that you're working with. And so if you can automate that process, you can lead to better quality matches, do it for better pricing, and you can remove the human aspects, the slowness and the variance of it um, and, uh, and actually generate more results. So sometimes uh, because you're using humans, you might only get one meeting or two meetings max. But if you want to talk to like 50 people, that's going to take a, lo- a much larger army of people to generate those meetings for you. And yeah. so with our work, we scale infinite, right? We just throw more machines at it, throw more processes at it. We can get you if you want.
0: I mean, this is is why ZoomInfo IPO, right? And just broke a $16 billion market gap. You type in, I want to talk to CFO. Then you go to a company like built with get technographic data and say they all installed installed the Salesforce JavaScript on their site. Boom. You have a list literally of every company online that uses Salesforce and their CFO with the JavaScript embed. Like, I just don't understand. How are you making your thing 10x better so people switch from their current flows over to what you're building?
1: Well, so if you look at kind of diligence versus like what ZoomInfo is doing, I mean, um, they're kind of helping you build the list of targets that you need to go after and the data about those people then there's kind of the secondary effect which is how you actually break into those accounts and actually get meetings with those people and get them to respond to you and talk to you and that's where you have to hire either in the case of diligence
0: like big consulting firms okay so you're replacing that you're going to say this person's better on twitter this one stick to a linkedin this one cold email this one pick up phone and call exactly this
1: is like outreach automated it does the actual things that you're you would hire consultants or reps to do uh, and it can do it arguably more effectively because it can do everything a human can do. Because a lot of the things that humans do to do these processes today is, in, is incredibly manual. There's yeah,
0: no API for I 50% it. of this stuff. I get it. I get it. Right. So like, if, you, if this does well for you, you are going to essentially make, build a much better like RPA-driven outreach.io or sales law. And then additionally, your first killer app is going to be disintermediating GLG and consulting firms.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's kind of the areas that we're playing with to some extent. The sales, the growth area, like sales and marketing is a trickier beast because incentives and stuff can't you have to be careful about that, how you do, apply those things. In the diligence space, it makes more sense. Um, but in the um, you know when you're doing sales and marketing, you have to be able, you have to be uh, wary of the rules and regulations around that as well because you can't, like, for example, pay someone to take a meeting and then they buy your product because there's a conflict of interest. So you have to like be a little bit yeah, different yeah.
0: while you reach out, uh, but it's a similar type of approach. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Okay. So where are you guys at today? You've been doing this for 18 months. I mean, are you like rich? How are you paying yourself?
1: Yeah. So, um, so we had some capital from uh, our previous acquisitions. That's kind of what helped us bankroll it. And obviously the, the technical investments that we made are, are, are important. It's a, it's a fairly hard AI problem. And so, so I think how much have you put in
0: so far personally?
1: Oh, uh, we're not disclosing amounts yet, but um, but what we have done is in the last six months, we've actually brought on customers. So we have many uh, customers, many of whom even have like you know more than 10 billion in capitalization. So we're you know, we're cranking and it's doing well. Feedback's really strong. It's still self, uh, but we're excited to hopefully. We pay, uh, a bunch of customers. I mean, are we
0: talking like 10 customers or like a thousand customers?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely in the tens
0: of customers since we're smaller. Enterprise only. motion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Okay. And when you say- 10 uh, We think billion, we can grow, we can grow and support that volume though. I think you just said 10 billion of, of AUM. Are you targeting financial firms?
1: Um, there's a mix. Um, so there's there's various types of, there's corporate companies who want to do diligence stuff uh, or break into new markets, new market research, but there's also obviously the investment firms. And the investment firms obviously, in, in like the space of diligence, they're, they tend to be a larger chunk of the revenue for the current companies in that, in
0: that market. Uh, so many of the companies we're working with are in that space too. Got it. VC firms, private equity firms, diligence firm, M&A firms, investment bankers, et cetera. Yep. Interesting. Okay, got it. And um, when, so you guys got going on this, I think you said about 18 months ago, you've been sort of in stealth building this. You're putting in your own personal capital to date. You guys haven't uh, raised traditional, anything traditional?
1: Yeah, we haven't done any new raise uh, for this company yet, um, but we're,
0: you yeah, know, yeah. based it's on the like momentum, we're going to raise... We'll how happen, you come from this world, if you were going to go raise, I mean, do you plan to raise this year? Um, it, it's a possibility. I mean,
1: it, based on what we're seeing right now and the feedback we're getting, it feels it feels realistic. Like, uh, but, know, we're not in a rush either. Like we're growing. And so it's, a, it's just a matter of like, you know, it depends on what market we end up kind of really going after. If we're going after like the enterprise segment or if we're going after kind of a tail and we want to make this open to everyone to use, then we probably want to build that product out first and then be able to raise on that. So right now we're kind of still in that early phase of running it with, you know, tens of logos and then see what the feedback looks like and then and then decide what market we go after. And then that's gonna dictate how we, you know,
0: bankroll it. When you guys came off the ground, I guess, 18 months ago, did you just go, you know, we'll split it 50-50, we're equal partners, or did you do something different? Um
1: our yeah, our equity structure, yeah, we're not really disclosing that as well that's pretty part
0: expensive. of the part of the reason we do the show though is to help people understand how to create a company the number one conflict and usually the first conflict with co-founders is equity so talk about it to the extent that you can
1: yeah i think so uh in in general i think um the way the equity structure should be split is based on like where that uh, a single where, where a person came in so if for example, you have like day zero, I don't want
0: to use a hypothetical. I want to use your example. Did you both start on day one?
1: No, it wasn't all start on day zero. You started
0: yeah. first, you or him? Uh, I did. Okay. So it was your idea. Then you sort of brought him in. And from a capital perspective, are you both saying we'll both learn equal amounts of capital or are you really bankrolling this thing?
1: Yeah, we had, you know, proceeds from our, pre- our previous acquisitions that worked. And so that's kind of where, where that's bankrolled. Um, you, think that
0: you or him, like, because that's just part of the co-founder thing. Sometimes co-founders bankroll it and the other one gets less equity because of it. Other times it's opposite.
1: Yeah. I mean, so my, even with my previous company, we would buy into our shares, but we're not, we weren't necessarily bootstrapping it with significant like, personal capital. And we were kind of fortunate with our previous company, we were able to bring in investors early on. And we obviously bought into our equity stake, so we own those shares and we put that skin in the game um so the the significant portion of the business that we're running is not based on necessarily like our personal cash but you know proceeds either from investors or um people who've been involved with our company before and so um and that's the case with this one as well um and then you know when we go raise the next round you know obviously the investors are going to take you know take good are going to put most of the money in the next round too so
0: Well, listen, I'd ask where people can learn more about you, but you're not disclosing. Uh, Is it stealth? So we'll skip that question. Vic, I appreciate you. Yeah, I'll be for the next podcast. (laughs) Thanks for taking us to the top, man. Appreciate it. All right. Awesome.